Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. As most of you know, I was born in 1957, which means I'm just about to turn 64, so I have to worry about being needed and fed. But also, it means I grew up in the um, 60s and 70s. While I was growing up, my father was a physician, an internist to be specific. And in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, while I don't know the sort of exact numbers, the median primary care physician, I'm reasonably certain, made more money than the median Major League Baseball player. And certainly the expected career earnings of a primary care physician greatly exceeded even star baseball players. Looked it up today, median uh, primary care physician income is about $240,000 annually. It's about $340,000 for specialists. And the uh, median Major League Baseball salary is a little over $4 million. The uh, highest Major League salaries are in the $35 million range, so kind of nine times the median. Don't know the numbers from the 60s and 70s, but I imagine that's a multiple. So over the course of my life, the relative income of physicians and Major League Baseball players, though, you know, more generally, yeah, professional athletes has uh, shifted by a factor of, you know, I don't know, 15, 20, 30, maybe more, X. So what, what happened? You know, why and how did this occur? Now, now, I would suggest that the fundamentals of supply and demand in the medical market, physician care market, and also the baseball labor market have not changed so radically to account for you know what is more than an order of magnitude there wasn't a sudden glut of physicians uh, that supply has been pretty tightly controlled there wasn't a sudden slackening of demand and similarly there was moderate, modest expansion of the number of teams, but you know there are 32 teams, and you know more or less every little boy at some point wants to be a professional baseball player. In addition to you know middle-aged and older men, I mean, who wouldn't want to play professional baseball? So how did this occur? I would posit two things. You know, on the baseball side, Kurt Flood, St. Louis Cardinal in the early 70s, went to court, challenged the reserve clause in the standard baseball contract, won, and free agency came into the fore. I'm not sure if there's always been a uh, baseball players union, but certainly post that, there have been collective bargaining agreements and the union has been remarkably successful, particularly considering that there are 32 owners and 1,000 players. The owners all have a good deal of economic power. 
the uh, baseball players, particularly as they enter the system, have almost none. And this is, you know, sort of true across the board for professional sports. Professional athletes in the major team sports are unionized and their unions have been unbelievably successful. On the uh, physician side, you know, it, you know, probably in a word, HMOs and insurance companies, universal third-party payment. In the 60s and 70s, which is when the advent of, of universal third-party payment really came into being, third-party payment was good for physicians. Basically, they didn't have to worry about getting paid. Over you know, the subsequent 50-ish years, um, it's obviously been very bad. Um, as uh, the median figures vis-a-vis -vis <coughs> comparing physicians to uh, uh, professional athletes highlight. So on the provider side, the buyers of medical services, a relatively small number who've effectively been able to communicate and collude, have been very, very successful in containing the cost to primary providers, you know, much less so on the uh, drug side where there are protected monopolies and on the treatment slash device, perhaps procedure side. In classical Adam Smithian economic thought or the economic model, everybody is a price taker. Supply and demand are, are curves as opposed to, you know, kind of bands. And everybody, you know, sort of has to accept the price where the two curves intersect. In reality, a huge amount of economic activity is negotiated, and the relative strength of parties across the table, which is, of course, affected by the supply and demand on each side, but not entirely, the relative strength of the negotiating parties turns out to be quite dominant. In a couple of these podcasts, you know, I've talked about how I expect labor costs to go up and that, you know, in fact, one of the drivers of the poor income gains for hourly labor over the past 50 years has been the decline in unionization, the decline in their effective negotiating power it. And one of the big events along that timeline was Reagan's firing of the air traffic controllers. I expect the bargaining power, both in terms of supply and demand, but also, you know, what in foreign policy circles is called soft power, the power of public perception and the ability to mobilize it on behalf of labor are in the process of shifting. I highlighted in another uh, podcast that I thought the unionization vote at Amazon was a big deal. Amazon won, but they may not win the next one. And certainly the threat has to be on uh, Amazon's mind. So I see a shift in the negotiating power of labor and that pushing wages up. On the interest rate fronts, you know, again, people who have uh, the classic lens of the economics they learned or didn't learn in college 
would not think of interest rates as being a highly negotiated market wherein the relative negotiating power of the different sides matters. I think this is actually wrong. And um, we've seen it over the last number of years. The Fed has considerable power apart from their absolute buying power. As a thought experiment, one can imagine the five largest banks and the five largest money managers, fixed income money managers in the country, effectively negotiating collectively, another word for that might be colluding, and demanding that the Fed cease buying, that the Fed raise rates. And I think in kind of pure economic power, they would have a a fair chance of success. Uh, I don't know whether such an effort would be legal or not. I know it's not going to happen. And at least in part, the legal landscape is an impediment from there being effectively uh, a buyer's strike in the fixed income world. And so, you know, I've said in my previous podcast that even with very meaningful inflation, you know, four to eight percent over the next four or five years, I think it's very, very possible that the central banks and governments around the world will be able to contain rates. And even with such an inflationary picture, they may well be able to keep the 10% bond, you know, in the vicinity of 2% and uh, corporate and mortgage spreads stable and moderate. I think way, way, way back when there used to be talk about uh, the bond market vigilantes, that the power in interest rates was in the market and markets could in fact demand and get a positive real return independent of Fed action. Is that true today? You know, I think not. And I think it's wrong to underestimate what might be called the Fed's soft power, you know, sort of their ability to um, jawbone, their considerable regulatory power, their considerable power to move uh, public perception and expectations. So it used to be a cliche that the Fed could control short rates, but not long rates. Long rates were set by the market. Post-crisis, that hasn't been true. But, you know, again, you know, in part because the Fed directly cannot control corporate long bond issuance. And again, you know, I said directly, but but indirectly, certainly corporate borrowers face the threat of downgrades, which the government faces only to a very limited degree. And certainly the Fed could and would pressure rating agencies not to bless a huge supply of corporate bond issuance, even if it were tightly covenanted in a way that might otherwise preserve high-grade corporate issuers as still high-grade. So I think in terms 
of coming up with a macro view of the world and to lesser extent even down to the micro level i think it's very under appreciated the degree to which prices are negotiated and the importance of the negotiating power of the uh, various elements and i think it's more important to watch that and be sensitive to that than to try and calibrate you know very nuanced changes in supply and demand and i would you know harken back to the example of uh, physicians and major league baseball players professional athletes generally over the last 50 years you know what happened to supply and demand what happened to negotiating power and which one you know really drove the prices that we see today that's it thank you again try and do another short brief one in uh, no more than a week i appreciate all of my listeners and any positive feedback that anyone might offer thank you again thank you for listening to ask andy If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.